0: to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: Remember that term, the substitutionary death of Christ, because that's what the Bible teaches. Christ died as a substitute for us, but that is what is radically under attack in certain segments of the church today and, out, of course, out in the broader culture. Uh, for anybody who's aware of the gospel message, many of them would come strongly against the idea of a substitutionary atonement.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 31, in a message titled, Why It Had to Be So. Now, here's Pastor Brian.
1: Today, I want us to drill down into this statement that Jesus made here in verse 31, when he acknowledges that Peter is indeed correct, he is the Messiah, but then verse 31 says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and three days later rise again. So that's a verse that I want us to focus on, and I want to begin by looking at the word must. So this passage really, as I've been reading it over for the past few weeks, this this one word has just continued to stand out to me. This word must, this is an imperative, meaning the things referred to are absolutely necessary. In other words, they have to happen if the objective is to be attained. And so this word must, it's an imperative, but we could even say it's it's beyond an imperative. It's a divine imperative because it's God himself, God the Son, who is telling us what absolutely has to happen. There's no way around this. This is a must. Now, there are several places in the scripture where you can find these divine imperatives. And one way to do it, it's its kind of an interesting study, actually. But if you just go to any kind of like a Bible program or on your computer, or you can go to blueletterbible.com, just write in the word must, and, and then it'll give you all the times in the Bible that the word must is used. And as you follow it through, you won't want to look at every one of them, but you will see that In certain cases, these are, again, they are divine imperatives. It is God speaking, saying that this is the way it has to be. Probably the most well-known divine imperative is the one that Jesus gave when he was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. So you see, it's not an option. It has to happen. If a person is going to get to heaven, there's only one way. They must be born again. And so, as we look at this 31st verse here, this is again, it's that divine imperative. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again. So, here's the question. Why did it have to be so? That's a question that we want to address today. Why did it have to be that the Son of Man had to suffer, had to be rejected, had to die, and had to rise again? So we're going to answer this question in two ways. First of all, we're going to answer it by looking at what theologically orthodox Bible-believing Christians have always held to be the answer. So what I'm going to do in a minute is I'm going to read you a statement from J.C. Ryle. We've quoted him before in our study through Mark J.C. Ryle, just to refresh your memory. He was the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool in 1880. He became the bishop and he served in that role until his death in 1900. But he's, he was a great evangelical voice in his generation. He wrote a great work on the four gospels, and that, that's been passed down from generation to generation. So I've been reading that since I was a young pastor in ministry, and I always get greatly encouraged from his insights. And so I, I want to give us a quote from him because it Many, many people could, could have said this. He just happens to be the one who said it. But it's the, it's the orthodox theological position on this question of why Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. So that's the first thing we're going to do. And then secondly, we're going to look at what the biblical text actually says. Now, the biblical text, the reason why we're going to look at that is because the, uh, the statement from Ryle, although it has biblical text in it, they're not clearly acknowledged as so. I mean, they they are actual statements from the scripture, but there's no like verse reference next to it. So I want you to see from the Bible itself that this is what is being taught. And the reason why we need to see that is because there's pretty fierce opposition in some segments of the church today and in the broader culture to the idea that Jesus had to suffer and die for sin. Believe it or not, there are people in the church today who would actually deny that that is the case. And they would attribute this teaching of Christ dying in the place of sinners, they would attribute this to the influence of false religion, and they would even uh, implicate Paul the Apostle saying, Paul, he came in and he brought these other ideas into Christianity that were contrary to the view that Jesus had and so forth. So we want to uh, look at a few of those ideas and we can see that they can easily be dismissed. They are completely untenable when we look at the biblical picture there. So that's what we're going to do. And then that'll bring us to the final question. After we find out why these things must be so, the final question is, well, what do we do since these things are so? All right, so here we go. The theological statement, quoting from, as I said, J.C. Ryle. Listen to what he said. I'm just going to read it. He said, why did our Lord say must Did he mean that he was unable to escape suffering? That he must die by compulsion of a stronger power than his own? Impossible. This could not have been his meaning. Did he mean that he needed to die to give a great example to the world of self-sacrifice and self-denial? And that this and this alone make his death necessary? Once again, impossible. There is a far deeper meaning in the word must suffer and be killed. He meant that his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for man's sin. Without shedding his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction of God's holy law. He must suffer to make reconciliation for iniquity. He must die because without his death as a propitiatory offering, sinners could never have life. He must suffer because without his vicarious sufferings, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Here is the center of the Bible. Let us never forget that. All other truths compared to this are of secondary importance. In life and in death, in health and in sickness, let us lean all our weight on this mighty fact that though we have sinned, Christ has died for sinners. And that though we deserve nothing, Christ has suffered on the cross for us. And by that suffering, purchased heaven for all that believe in him. So that is basically a summary of the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. Remember that term, the substitutionary death of Christ, because that's what the Bible teaches. Christ died as a substitute for us, but that is what is radically under attack in certain segments of the church today and, of course, out in the the broader culture. Uh, For anybody who's aware of the gospel message, they would... Many of them would, would come strongly against the idea of a substitutionary atonement. So, so that's a summary of what the Bible teaches. So that is the, the theologically orthodox position that all Christians have held from the very beginning to this day. So secondly now, as I said, let's look at the biblical answer, which I already said. It's really the same as a the theological answer. We're just going to look at some biblical text to show that this is indeed what the Bible says. Because as you're gonna see in a few minutes, when I quote from an opponent of this view, this person is gonna say, the Bible doesn't teach this. And so people are gonna say that to you. They're gonna say, well, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus had to be punished for our sins. And we have to be able to respond to that. So we need to see that it is the the scriptural position. So, but but remember we're at we're answering the question why it had to be so. So why did Jesus have to die as a substitute for us? Well, number 1, the scriptures declared that it must be so. This is what the scripture said. And and Jesus himself after he had died and risen again from the dead, in Luke chapter 24, we have Jesus speaking with his disciples And listen to what he said to them. He said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus says that there were things written that concerned him in the law and the prophets and in the Psalms. And then he said this, thus it is written. And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. So why did things have to be this way? Because the scripture said that this is how it would be. And of course, when we talk about the scripture, we are talking about God. God is the one who spoke. We believe, because the Bible teaches, that The scriptures are not the ideas of men. The scriptures are not the result of any person just thinking about how God might have done things and then presenting to us their opinion. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that the scriptures have come to us because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about scripture and we talk about the authority of scripture, we're basically talking about the voice of God. God said it had to be this way. So Jesus points, first of all, to Moses, to the law of Moses, to the prophets and the Psalms. And he says in all of those things, it was written about him and specifically about his suffering. Now, we're going to look at one prophetic passage that puts all of the things that Jesus mentioned together in one, in, literally in one chapter. Isaiah 53 gives us all of those things, the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection. They're all in one chapter, but they're not only in that one chapter. They're all condensed in that one chapter, but all throughout the biblical text, there was a message that was being communicated about the suffering and the rejection and the death of the Messiah. And sometimes it was communicated just in straightforward language, telling us this is what's going to happen. But sometimes it was being communicated through the lives of God's servants. You see, like Moses, Moses was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet in the sense that he spoke the words of God, but aspects of Moses's life and experience were prophetic. And the same is true if you go further back in the history to Joseph, So Joseph's prophetic ministry was more his life than anything he actually said. But David also, David was a prophet who prophesied the Psalms. Many of the Psalms were written by David, but David's life was telling a story. And with Joseph, Moses, and David, what is the the common denominator? All of them suffered. All of them were rejected. So the suffering and the rejection was sometimes the suffering and rejection that would come for the Messiah was sometimes being communicated through the life experience of these people. But then, as I said, there are those places where it is very clearly laid out. So Isaiah 53 is the great biblical text where the things that Jesus said in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected... And die and rise again, it's all there in Isaiah 53. So let me just summarize Isaiah 53. I'm gonna quote directly from Isaiah 53, not in the exact order. Uh, if you go back and read it, you'll see that I've taken it a little bit out of order, but I basically just switched the rejection and the suffering because that's the order in. Isaiah 53. So listen to what it says. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So there is his rejection. The Son of Man must be rejected. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. The Son of Man must suffer. And there is the suffering. But then remember, the son of man must also be killed. And so Isaiah 53 says, he was cut off from the land of the living and they made his grave with the wicked. So there we have his death. But then Isaiah 53 also goes on to tell us about his resurrection. God shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So you have someone who suffers, someone who is rejected, someone who dies, and then someone who actually ends up reigning. And so you see, it's all right there in Isaiah 53. So the first reason it had to be so is because the scriptures declared that it had to be so. And if God says something has to be a certain way, that's the way it's going to be, because God is God. And when he speaks, we can just have confidence that he knows all things, ultimately determines how they're going to be done. Uh, Nothing God has said can fail or be altered by anyone ever. That's a good thing to remember in our current cultural moment here. Because there are all kinds of ideas in the culture that are in conflict with what God has declared. And people somehow seem to think that just because they're convinced that something is a certain way, that that's the way it is. Well, it doesn't work that way because God is the one who set things, God is the author of reality. And we cannot alter what is. What God has said, what God has declared, It cannot fail or be altered by anyone ever. That is just a good thing to know. So it had to be this way because the scripture said it had to be this way. Secondly, it had to be this way. Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, die. It had to be this way in order for Christ to fully identify with humanity. So when Jesus comes into the world, now remember, Jesus isn't a sinner, Jesus has no sin. He's not born in sin because he's born of a virgin. He has no sin nature. He doesn't sin himself. He's sinless. But what is he coming to do? He's coming to save sinners. So apart from sin, with the exception of sin, he enters into the full human experience. And As a human being, he is going to experience the suffering that humanity has experienced. He's going to experience rejection. He's going to experience death. And when it comes to his death on the cross, this is where we see Jesus identifying to the fullest extent with a suffering humanity. Man has suffered immensely throughout history. Man has suffered because of disease and disaster and injustice, cruelty, torture, heartbreak, death. This is what history is. It's a long tale of suffering and woe. Jesus, in his love, chose to experience the full impact of what sin had done to the human race. So when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, it's really because he must enter into the full experience. See, the amazing thing when you think about what Jesus did, because today people will oftentimes accuse God of injustice, accuse God of being unfair. Why would God make a world that is like the world that we live in? Why would God allow people to suffer and so on and so forth? Those those questions come up all the time, right? And although we can't give a definitive answer like, well, God told me this is why he did it, or God wrote down why he did it, Here's what we can remind people of. Well, whatever the answer is to why God did it, here's what we need to remember God did not exempt himself from it. And that's what we see with Jesus. He's not exempting himself from it. This, this horrible experience that humanity has had because of sin, Jesus enters into it fully. He suffers, he's rejected, he's betrayed, he's executed he dies. So with Jesus, the cross testifies to the immeasurable compassion of the Son of God and to the extent of his identifying with suffering sinners. So it had to be so because the scripture said it had to be so for Jesus to fully identify with humanity, but it also had to be so, and this is our main point today, Because Christ was suffering vicariously for us, which simply means he was suffering in our place, which means we should have suffered those things because of our transgression, but he suffered them for us. Now, that's the gospel. That's what the scriptures teach, that he suffered, was rejected, killed, and he rises again as our substitute. Remember what I said earlier, that term, substitutionary atonement. That's the, big, that, that's the big message of scripture. And that's the thing that people today are very, very bothered by. But I want you to think back to our quote from Bishop Ryle and just a few words that he used. He used the word atonement. He used the word propitiatory, which means a propitiation, which means to satisfy wrath, to pay the penalty for a transgression. That's the idea behind propitiation. And he also used the term satisfying the demands of God's holy law. So God has a law. It's broken. There must be a penalty for the broken law. Jesus satisfies that. Now, as I said, although this is the the biblical gospel, not everyone wants to believe that or accept that. Let me give you a sample of some of the current opposing views on the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I'm I'm just going to quote from one person, but I could quote from 20 people today who have, to some degree, the public's ear who are saying similar things. But I'm going to use as our sample here today the Reverend Scott McKenna from none other than Edinburgh, Scotland. So he is a minister in the Church of Scotland. And in in many ways, he's very typical of many ministers in that that denomination. He's very typical of uh, ministers in many denominations across the board. So let me read to you what the Reverend Scott McKenna says. He said this, he said, "'The theology that says Jesus paid the price for our sins is, in my view, an obstacle to evangelism in the 21st century.
0: For the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say by Preston Sprinkle. In today's culture, both Christians and non-Christians experience incongruence with their gender, but the church has generally avoided this culturally sensitive topic. So how can we address this issue from a biblical perspective and love the transgender community more widely, both inside and outside the church? And how can we love them in compassionate and practical ways? Well, in his book Embodied, Preston adds his voice to the conversation with sound biblical research that is expressed with pastoral sensitivity, compassion, grace, and love. To understand transgender identities from a biblical, psychological, and scientific perspective, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Embodied, Transgender Identities, The Church, and What the Bible Has to Say by Preston Sprinkle. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.